Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast, hoping to bring some possibilities into your life. When I think of that word possibility, I think of the one and only Bill O'Hanlon of Solution-Oriented Therapy, but he is really so multi-talented. And when we think about the year 2020, we all need some possibilities and a way to reframe the global pandemic and other national travesties that we've experienced both as therapists and just as humans this year. So the Pioneer Series, one of my favorite parts of the show, sitting down with Bill O'Hanlon, and uh, it's a real treat. If you don't know who he is, let me tell you a little bit about him. Bill is a dynamic, inspirational speaker and prolific author. He'll tell you he's the author of over 39 books, who's a motivator of people and a marriage and family therapist by training. He became known for his collaborative, respectful approach, a reverent humor, storytelling, and clear and straightforward presentation style, which will come through in our interview today. His enthusiasm is really infectious. He began his career in 1975 as a self-professed hippie therapist in a clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. That's where he met the great Milton Erickson. It's a big part of our interview today. He'll tell you about Milton Erickson's impact on him personally and professionally. He was his gardener, literally. Bill really hit the mainstream too. He appeared on Oprah, which everybody has wanted their Oprah moment. He had his with his book, Do One Thing Different, 10 Simple Ways to Change Your Life. He's also appeared on the Today Show and has been featured in Ladies Home Journal, Newsweek, Women's Health, the Psychotherapy Networker. He has a bunch of professional qualifications, which matter to some people, as he likes to say. So I'll tell you, in addition to being a clinical fellow in, in AAMFT, he's a diplomat board member and fellow in the American Psychotherapy Association. He is certified by the National Board of clinical hypnotherapist. He is a certified professional counselor and was awarded Outstanding Mental Health Educator of the Year in 2001 by the New England Educational Institute. You're going to enjoy this and a treat. Hang on till the end. This is our first musical performance by a guest. As you see, he uh, wears many hats. The one and only Bill O'Hanlon. So glad to be joined on the AAMFT podcast by Bill O'Hanlon, a jack of all trades, and he has had quite the life story in one of the most popular segments on the AMFT podcast, finding out the story behind the therapist. Bill has quite a story. So Bill, welcome to the podcast. And the first question, as always, is how did you get into couple and family therapy and systems thinking to start with? Take us back to the beginning, if you will. Well, a couple of things. I grew up in a big Irish Catholic family around Chicago, so I had a lot of experience in family, (laughs) big family, and I was the shy one in the family, very quiet. I was middle kid, and I, my parents always encouraged us to go far away for school. When you're 18, basically, you were supposed to go out and work or go to school, and so I went to college, and I went from Chicago to Arizona, and I sort of got lost a bit, so I became a bit depressed. And I had planned to be a 
a psychology major because I was interested in parapsychology, like Ghostbusters kind of stuff. Uh, J.B. Ryan was at Duke and doing research into that. And when I got depressed, I became much more interested in human psychology, decided to switch my you know, focus to just general psychology and then to become a therapist. Yeah. So that was 70. To, I started college in 70 and um, Arizona State and Tempe. I had to work my way through college and I was a work-study student and I was working at an art gallery, uh, Matthews Art Gallery at Arizona State. A guy showed up there and he was in a wheelchair and we weren't wheelchair accessible. We were on the third floor. I was able to wrangle a way to get him up to the art gallery through the ramp we used to bring art up and then get him down and it was a challenge and uh, when he left, my fellow student said, do you know who that was? That was a famous psychiatrist and I said, no, I don't know who that is. She said, you're a psychology major, you should know. And it was Milton Erickson. People you may not know, but he was a psychiatrist who had a big influence on the beginnings of marriage and family therapy. He started to see couples and families in his office in the late 40s. 49 was the first reference I could find. And most psychiatrists until the 70s and still uh, were individually oriented. So he wasn't analytic. He had a whole different tradition. And that was 1973 when I met him at that art gallery. And just that week, uh, Uncommon Therapy, Jay Haley's book about Milton Erickson's work had come out. And there was an article in Newsweek magazine, Time magazine, I can't remember which, was called Svengali in Arizona. And it's detailed some of those weird and fascinating cases that Erickson did. If, you, if any of you know him, he's just fascinating guy. And it took me a few years, and I didn't work up the courage till I was in graduate school, but I read everything I could find in the interim. And when I was in graduate school, I wrote him a letter saying, I'd like to come and study with you. And I didn't have any money, and so I ended up becoming his gardener for a year while I was in graduate school because I couldn't afford to pay him. And he warped me for life um, in a couple of ways. Reading that Jay Haley book made me really be interested in a systemic approach and an interactional approach to therapy rather than an individual. You, you literally and figuratively sat under his learning tree. That's, that's a, cr a crazy story. Uh, yes, you mentioned Uncommon Therapy. I remember I've been in the field 20 years and supervisor who really loves strategic family therapy said, you have to read this book and it, it still holds the test of time. So, Well, it's, uh, uh, it's both it, discouraging it, and encouraging. Discouraging because like I'll never be able to do that kind of magical stuff that he did and encouraging because he was really optimistic about people being able to change and he had a really different point of view, a very systemic, um, even individually systemic, if I can say that. Uh, that's a weird uh, phrase to use, but that re really influenced me and to realize wow, there's a whole system around people that has an influence on them, both negatively and positively. And I grew up in a family that was a little blamey, so I was really attracted to family therapy because it didn't pin the label on anybody. And that and systemic stuff, I mean, it does sometimes, I'm sure, but the kind that I studied, Virginia Satir, MRI, um, interactional therapies, Jay Haley's strategic therapy, and Erickson's work was really non-blaming. And that really appealed to me. Nobody got blamed for the problem. And that was one of the big attractions. Now, let me ask you a little bit more about Milton as he was your major mentor. People will say we had Chloe Madonis on the show and she was very positive about him. But she said he spoke in, in non-direct ways, much like his hypnotic suggestions and his paradoxical directives. Was he like a, I always thought of him as like a Mr. Miyagi teaching Daniel son how to learn karate with these very indirect ways. He was much of a storyteller, as you are too. Describe that year of sitting under the learning tree and being his gardener, what you learned from him, and was his teaching of you much like his writing and his, his work as far as very non-direct and very mysterious in a way? Yes, it was. Um, he was very inspirational, kind of intimidating. He was not very explicit. You know, I'm, I teach workshops all the time. I write books. I've written 39 books, and I really like to make things very explicit, very simple. That's one of my gifts is to take complex things and make them simple, including Erickson's work. And he wasn't that way. <laughs> he liked the mystery. He liked to use metaphor. You know, I remember the only time he ever answered a direct question was when I really pressed him a bunch of times in a row about gardening. <laughs> So when I say, do you want me to do this or this? He would answer this. And that was clear. But when it came to therapy, it was almost always, 
indirect, non-direct, metaphorical, and vague. And he would he liked to teach by experience, sort of like those Zen masters and Mr. Miyagi. He didn't like to explain a great deal. He liked to show you. He liked to give you experiences rather than tell you. And you were coming of age in the golden age of family therapy in the 70s, so you read all you could and you studied with Milton Erickson. Were you one of those guys that had always thought systemically you just didn't have the language for it? Or did systems thinking really change was a paradigm shift for you and how you originally thought? Well, it's sort of a combination like everyone else in this culture. Grow up, I grew up mostly individually oriented, thinking that things arose within people and that they were, were caused by inner elements, biological, developmental, personality-wise, that kind of stuff. But I was also a hippie at the time. That was hippie time, and I was definitely a hippie. I had long hair down to my waist. And I was influenced by the ecology movement. So I was already thinking ecosystemically in terms of nature. And it was a short leap from there. Bateson, Gregory Bateson was talking about, you know, an ecology of mind. And he and Erickson were colleagues and knew each other and influenced each other. So it was a short leap, but it was a leap to go to more systemic ideas rather than individually oriented ideas, and that I've never gone back. Even though, again, Erickson had a way to work with people individually, thinking of their inner systems connected with outer systems in a systemic way. So I learned hypnosis from him, which I had no interest in before I went to see him. I thought it was kind of scary voodoo stuff, and it, he showed me that it was part and parcel of the whole systemic way of thinking. So I really, I converted at that point. I drank the Kool-Aid and I was like, yes, systemic all the way. I'll just tell you a story because, you know, that's how Erickson taught. And this story influenced Please. me so much. I was sitting with Dr. Erickson. I was gardening and he was, he told me a story. He's, he was telling about this woman that was um, the uh, aunt of one of his former patients. And the former patient contacted him and said, Dr. Erickson, I know you're going to give a lecture in Milwaukee. And I, have an aunt who's become seriously depressed. After your lecture, would you mind going to see her? She's inherited a lot of money. She lives all alone and she's been ill in the last couple of years. She's been in a wheelchair and she's basically confined to her house because she hates to go out. So Erickson finishes his lecture, goes over to the woman's house in Milwaukee, introduces himself. The nephew's already said that he's going to come and visit her. Erickson had polio when he was younger and walked with a cane. So instantly in the 50s, they had some sort of rapport and connection because people with dis disabilities were shunned and shamed a lot in that culture in that time. And so she had inherited this big house, 11 rooms, a lot of money, and she had an elevator put in, but she didn't like to go out because the world wasn't wheelchair accessible. And she'd isolate herself, become really depressed, and she showed Erickson all around her house, and it looked lonely and depressing. She was the only one who lived here, kept all the curtains drawn because she was embarrassed about being in a wheelchair. She got him to the end of the tour and showed him her pride and joy, which was the plant uh, greenhouse nursery attached to her house. And she had all these wonderful plants. Erickson grew up on a farm. He had a great affinity for growing things. So he showed great curiosity about that. And he saw these little plants. Um, they were, she told him they were from one African violet plant that uh, it was on the potting table. And she saw maybe 10 plants that she'd gotten going from cuttings. And he said, wow, that's really hard. And she said, yeah, I do have a bit of a green thumb. He'd also found out on the tour that she used to be very involved in her church community, and now she'd fallen away from that because it was so hard to get out. And uh, she had a guy who would drive her, and she had all the money in the world so she could hire somebody. And Erickson said, your nephew's told me you're depressed, and I don't think that's the real problem. She said, you don't. She sort of brightened up in a moment. He said, problem is you really have, haven't been a very good Christian. And she's really offended for a second, but he explains. He said, look, you have all this money. You have all this time on your hands. You have this great skill with plants. I recommend that you get your church bulletin, and whenever you see the notification of a, a, a member of the community, the church community, that has a birth, a death, a birthday, a graduation, a happy or sad event, some illness, you know, joy in their lives. You have that guy who drives you around, take you over to their house, repot one of those uh, African violet plants into a gift pot, 
and bring it to their house with congratulations or condolences or whatever the situation might call for. And uh, she agreed maybe she'd fallen down on her Christian duty and she was too self-absorbed. He went away, and then when I was studying with Erickson, he sent me to his bookshelf, got me to get out a scrapbook, and there, 10 years later or 11 years later, there was a notification in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the paper, local paper there, African Violet Queen of Milwaukee dies mourned by thousands. She'd become famous for showing up at people's houses whenever they had a happy or sad event, bringing these African violets, and that became her reputation and her community the last 11 years years of her life, and she lived a really great life during those years, and I was stunned by that story. Well, what a what a gift he gave her. Wow. Again, you think about systemic. She's all alone. She's isolated, and he connects her through something that she has a great joy about still in the midst of that depression, and I thought, that is the way I want to work. I want to find the African violet parts of people's lives, use that systemic idea of connecting them with resources around them and transform their lives. And that was a one-session psychotherapy cure, if you will. And that intrigued me too because I was raised in that era of psychoanalysis that took years and years and then learning about the Virginia Satires and the Jay Haley's and the MRIs that were doing shorter-term treatments, five, ten sessions really inspired me thinking you don't have to keep people in therapy that long if you can find a way to really shift them in a short amount of time. And I determined that I would learn how to work in that African violet systemic way. And I'm happy to see, you know, the Milton Erickson Foundation. And it does feel like in in recent years, there is more attention to his work and really being one of these founding influences on not just, as you said, systemic thinking, but specifically Jay Haley and strategic family therapy. So how to get from something that is, like you said, very unlike you, is very straightforward and charismatic. So we get from this hypnotic suggestion, very paradoxical, strategic way of working to something uh, very postmodern, uh, which clients being the experts, not the therapist pulling the strings into a solution oriented solution focused work tell us how you got on that track i was became obsessed before and after erickson's death with trying to figure out his confusing way of working because he was kind of mysterious and he didn't explain it much he just again in the zen like way gave you experiences i read everything i could i went to workshops with other people who were teaching about his work there were very few at the time but there were a few uh the early nlp people were teaching about and had written a book about his work and the person who'd written the most about Dr. Erickson's work prior to 1980 was a guy named Steve DeShazer, his social worker and a couple of family therapist. And he and I started to correspond. And by that time, I'd moved from Arizona and I'd gotten a job in the Midwest. My folks were from a small town in Nebraska and I moved there. And I was working at a community mental health center after having had several other jobs in the field. And uh, it turns out Steve DeShazer's parents lived in Omaha. So we started to correspond and he was a great letter writer back in the days when people did write letters instead of emails. And I was a pretty good letter writer. And I had I just started my uh, work there, and I didn't have many clients. So I would write 15-page letters to Steve, and Steve would write back 15-page letters to me. And we became really influential to each other. And I talked about that African violet thing and said I wanted to find a way to make that available to myself and to other people without being the weird Milton Erickson and mysterious and zen like Milton Erickson and we really worked together to try and articulate what that was that Erickson was doing and he ended up calling his solution focused and I ended up calling mine solution oriented and um, it was influenced by other people along the way a guy named Don Norum in 1978 before either of us came up with those terms wrote a paper and gave it in Steve Tshazer and Insuberg and uh, a few other people that later formed that Milwaukee family brief family therapy center were in this guy's lecture and it was called the family has a solution and it proposed this radical idea of asking family members whether they'd ever succeeded at solving a problem 
that was close to the problem. They and he said about half the time people have a solution, they're just not using it at the moment. So that influenced DeShazer and influenced me later when I found the, that paper, um, which didn't come to light for a bunch of years. And there were a group of us who were doing that work, exploring non-pathologizing. We weren't very interested in diagnosis or what was wrong with people. We were more interested in finding the African violet parts of people's lives and being informed by that systemic non-blame, just curiosity of how the both the therapist context and the context beyond therapy influence people and how you could make a little twist to start positive change happening without so, so much more present and future-oriented approach to therapy. And there are some systemic approaches that go back in genograms and try and find the sources of the problem in a system. And this approach was not so much interested in causes of problems, but much more in the present maintenance of problems and the future shift of problems. And it was very present to future oriented. And so we all as a group worked on that. Some of us are no longer alive. Steve and Insu, who were at the Milwaukee Center are no longer alive. There's a few other people that were very influential in those beginnings and they're no longer with us. Uh, but is that where you met Michelle too? Michelle Wiener Davis? Exactly right. Michelle, but Steve, Steve DeShazer was a strange guy. He's socially a little strange. I don't know how many of you have interacted with him, but I love he, he, he was that's why he was good behind the mirror and Insu was good in front. That's exactly. She was much more social, but he was a brilliant guy and he had a really weird sense of humor, but he started a newsletter for those of us, who, we, there wasn't a name for this way of working yet. He said, for those of us who work this way, it was called the Underground Railroad. And in that, he published an article from, uh, a clinical article from a woman named Michelle, what I thought it was Weiner Davis at this time, but it was Weiner Davis. You've interviewed her, so you know how to pronounce it. It was called The, the Road Not Taken, and it was about a grandmother who brought her her grandson and she was caring for him uh, the mother being out of the parents being out of the picture and she had all these invitations to go down a pathological and historical uh, route and instead just went that solution oriented which again we weren't calling it that yet um, way and I was stunned by that article I thought the writing was good I thought the case was good and I said to Steve DeShazer when I saw him next because we were buddies hey who is that Michelle Weiner Davis I got to meet her I love that article and he said she She's the best clinician we've ever had come through our program. And she became a colleague of his. And I met her at the next AMFT conference. We had the greatest time. She is a funny person. We have a great, uh, she has a great sense of humor, so do I. And we're still good buddies. I just was up at her house a month ago. Uh, I was at a songwriting conference and I stay at her house when I come up there in her area. And uh, we just became fast friends. And I told her, we're going to write a book together. And she just laughed, thought I was joking. And I went home and I- In Search of Solutions, solutions, right? right? Search of Solutions. And it came out in 1988. We started in 1987. And I sent her the outline to the book the next week. And she was like, you were serious? Why would you want to write a book with me? I said, you're, you're fun. You know this stuff. And you and I, I think, can hammer out the beginnings of this approach that I started called solution-oriented uh, brief therapy. And so we, we wrote that book. And she went on to other uh, things, as you know, because you've interviewed her. And if people want to go back and listen to that episode, I recommend it. Yes. Yeah. Both of you have a lot of, in your in your personalities, a lot of similarities. And that is, again, of your 39 books, certainly probably the one that puts you on the map and still, again, holds the test of time. Can you tell us, and maybe it's more semantic than anything else, can you tell us the differences between a solution-focused and a solution-oriented approach? I, I do. You know, obviously they get confused, and I don't mind that much. I used to mind a lot, but I say I came up with the term before they did, but there there's some dispute about that. But solution-oriented for me just means you're looking for strengths and abilities. There's no set formula for doing it. Solution focus became very formulaic. It became first first they had four keys to solutions that they used and then they had the first session task that they used and then the miracle question and I really have never used the miracle question in my work. I used it once. It kind of fell flat and I never used it again because Steve had told me about it but I find solution focus a bit more formulaic and also a bit 
to, to my mind, if it's done poorly, which, you know, it can be done with finesse and nuance, it kind of, I had a, a friend who had adopted the solution-focused approach in his clinic, and some people get so fanatical about they wouldn't be willing to talk with people about problems or pathology or anything like that, and they started joking their clinic calling it solution-forced. Now, I think they've made some reforms, and there are people that are better at it, but when people get into that formula thing, I think they stop listening to people. They're just so focused on, I only want to talk about the positive stuff and solutions and strengths and abilities, and I never want to talk about problems, never want to use labels. And for me, I mean, one time, um, Steve DeShazer really took me to task. He said, why are you teaching workshops about sexual abuse? That's a pathology. And that's going back to the past. And I said, well, because that's how the field talks about it. And I want to get to the field. I don't want to be pure. I want to help people really shift their their ways of thinking and their ways of working. So for me, solution-oriented is just more general. It also combines one of my first big influences before I met Erickson, which was Carl Rogers. I really love yeah. that validation, listening, non-judging, non-directive approach, and then combining that with the solution-oriented is where my sweet spot is. I'm not so much interested in formulaic tasks or questions. They just don't appeal to me. So I make that distinction, but again, it's a distinction that the field rarely makes, so I don't, I don't insist on it most of the time. So, Bill, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast uh, is that you have had this ability to reinvent yourself, still staying true to your roots, but adding. And another reason, part of the reinvention is just your prolific writing. Like you said, you've written 39 books. I want to know how you got the love of, of doing that and kind of bleed that into your spirit of reinvention over the years. Well, I started going out and speaking because I really wanted to change the field. I wanted to get more of these systemic, solution-oriented, more strength-based ideas and resource-based ideas into the field. And I was very shy, but I was so passionate about getting these ideas about, out that I overcame my fear of speaking and my shyness. And then people would come up to me after I started speaking a couple of times a month uh, around my area and then later nationally. And one of my first national conferences was the AMFT. So that was great. And um, I got invited back because I did pretty well. They used to rank speakers and they called me up and said, who are you? Well, you got third. We never heard of you. And I was like, yeah, all right. I've been doing a lot of speaking. So after about eight or nine years, people would just were had been coming up to me through the years. Where's your book? And I, oh, I don't know how to write. I've written a few articles, but a book seems daunting to me. And I sat down and wrote the first book. It was hard, blood on the keyboards. Took three years. Didn't come out until after the second book I wrote, which was the first one I wrote on Erickson called Taproots. And then I just went on to write with Michelle Weiner Davis that book we mentioned in Search of Solutions. And then it got easier as time went on. And then I was traveling twice a month, three times a month for 30 some years and I got very tired of traveling so I kind of I love to learn so I thought well everything's going on the internet like this podcast why not put my work on the internet and I learned to do that and then I didn't have to travel so much and then in my uh, later years here I revived an earlier dream I had to be a songwriter and so I'm 10 days a month in Nashville writing songs um, I'm trying to do it at a professional level and I still write books. I have, I've written three books in the last year and probably write a few more before I stop. So I just have this relentless desire to be a lifelong learner. And whenever I learn something, I want to teach other people or tell other people about it. So I have reinvented myself and it keeps me alive. I'm in my mid to late 60s at this point and I feel younger than I ever have. I'm just loving my life. And I do that because I keep reinventing myself every decade or two or whenever things start to shift for me and I get excited about something new. Oh, I have so many questions based on that. Let's start with the writing. It's iterative skill. The more you do it, the better habits you have for writing. I'm one of those guys that uh, I would rather talk to people than write. But I do find when I am purposeful about it and I block out time, especially trying to complete a book right now as we're speaking, it, it becomes something that while not as easy for me as speaking, that I get into a flow. Talk about 
your writing habits. And there's a lot of therapists out there. Another reason too, that they, they have something to say. Maybe they don't have a PhD. You know, you have accomplished much in the field, a model developer, a leader, a pioneer, and you don't have a PhD. Talk about clinicians out there that want to learn to write, but they don't, they feel like they need a academic credential to do that. Well, I mean, it's funny that you say that because the first person, I didn't know, I, I barely knew anyone who had written a book when I got the bug to write a book. And I asked someone who shall remain nameless, but is a pretty well-known figure in the field, hey, he'd edited a book and published it. This was in 1980. I said, hey, or 81, I said, hey, I want to write a book, but I don't have the first clue how to do it. And he said, but you'll never get a book published because you don't have a PhD or an MD. And in this field, that you have to have one of those. Now, I sort of knew that wasn't right because Jay Haley had a master's degree. Virginia Satir had a master's degree. So I sort of, I thought, I asked him for helpful advice and instead he's discouraging me. So he actually, I've talked to him about it. He doesn't remember saying that, but I swear he said that. It's sort of, you know, I just thought, well, okay, that's not going to help. So I just had to stumble around and do it myself. But I really disliked sitting down to write. I mean, maybe an article. I'd, I had about three or four articles, but a book seemed sustained effort. And as you're finishing one now, it takes time out of your everyday life. It's hard. And I just learned ways. I'm a little sparky. I don't like diagnoses, but I'm on that ADD side of the spectrum if you have to diagnose me. And I learned workarounds. I mean, first of all, I'd have to get so excited about something I couldn't not work on it. Secondly, I'm, I love music, and I would have to sit and listen to loud rock music, like ear-splittingly loud rock music. For some reason, that creates a bubble around me. And so I learned workarounds to help me do it. And more than that, I would sign contracts, and they would say, you have to deliver your book November 1st. And on October 20th, I'd be sitting there pounding on the keys because I tended to procrastinate in those days. Now I don't so much, but I did. So I just developed the muscle of sitting down, doing it after a while, now I don't have to listen to loud rock music. And also, as you said, anything you do a fair amount, it's that 10,000 hour thing. You just get better at it. And I write a book part-time in a couple of weeks now. It used to take me years. Now it takes me months or weeks. And if I know my topic and I just sit down and I found a way to let the flow happen, but I'm like you, I would still much rather do this conversation with you than sit down and write an article or book. I find it more fun. It's more interactive and more lively to me. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of parallels between the improvisational nature of music and therapy. So I do want to spend some time on that because you are, you're not just doing this as a hobby. You are doing this as a, another facet of your career on a very high level. You won't brag about yourself, but I mean, you with anything else, you go to Nashville 10 days a month where the songwriting singer, songwriter capital of the world, you're doing this at a very high level. Do you have a Milton Erickson of the, the songwriting world? Oh, yes. Yes. Well, the first person I really connect, I mean, you know, it's, it's fun because having s succeeded in several other parts of my professional career, I know some of the principles of success. I mean, you you put out something of value, you do the hard work, and you know you got to put something out in the world, and you be relational. You be fun to hang around with. I mean, that I've I made so many friends at AMFT and other family therapy and psychotherapy conferences. I teach every year at the Milton Erickson events, and uh, some of my best friends have come there. So I know in any field, it's a combination of who you know and how much. How, how much value you give and how much fun you are to hang with. So one of the first people I met in Nashville was a hit songwriter, had um, 14 number one songs. And again, people who are old enough can remember his first rock song, which got him out of being an electrician and into a full-time songwriter. It was called Love's Been a Little Bit Hard on Me. This a guy named Gary Burr. He had 14 number one songs, mostly in country after that. And I decided to write country for various reasons. It's they're looking for songwriters and in pop and rock most people write their own songs and singer-songwriters write their own songs. So he became one of my mentors and gurus, and I've written with him. Um, and maybe I'll play a little song that I wrote with him at the very end of this if we have some time. And um, I found out he wanted to put his work online, and he didn't know how to do it. And I'd figured that out with my own training. So I just said, I'll help you with that. I didn't charge him any money. He put out a course, and he made more money and re reached more people than he was when doing live workshops. And he was good at doing those live 
live workshops. He's a funny guy and a great teacher and a terrific songwriter. So I use some of those same principles, and he's sort of the Milton Erickson of songwriting. He's he's great at it and knows how to teach it better than Erickson knew how to teach it. Well, it's also also beautiful because we think of, you know, a mentor-mentee relationship like you had. And a lot of times the mentee, think about what the mentee gets, but the mentor gets something back. So you had something to offer, Mr. Burr, here in the sense that you are a great, not only integrator of technology, but a way to produce and market your own material. So you helped him with his self-promotion and he helped you with your songwriting was a great right. and uh, I'm, great trade. I'm helping him I'm helping him do a book now so he's written a book that's a great book and I'm helping him get it out in the world so yeah I mean just give and you know that's a principle in any field you be generous don't say what can you do for me what can I do for you and you'd be fun to hang around with and not a pain and um, you'll find some nice connections so. and, you, and your ability to come up with sound bites to think in in ways that resonate with people that must translate nicely to the lyrical world. It is. It's it's a bit different from writing, a, you know, I, as you say, I love to tell stories and I love to listen to stories, but doing a story that has to rhyme and have rhythm and make sense in three minutes is harder than writing a book. It's that old, I don't know who, who said it originally, it's been attributed to Mark Twain, but sorry for the long letter, I didn't have time to write a shorter one. And I, I find that with songwriting, you know, when I'm teaching a workshop, I have a lot of time to develop my material, but in a three and a half minute song, you got to get the whole story across and it's challenging, but it is so much fun to be doing this. And for some reason, I, like you said, I had to do it at a level that made it, that made a difference. And I want my songs listened to by millions of people. So I'm trying to do it professionally and it's really cool. And it is a lot, you know, I get to bring the wealth of experience from being a therapist for 40-some years and from being privileged to hear couples and family stories. Most songs are about relationships. They're about love and breakup and longing for love and happiness. And and I have thousands of those stories of my own, my friends and family, as well as my clients. And of course, you always disguise the details but and the identities, but you draw upon the emotional truth of those situations. So it's cool. You know, the story song in, in classic country music especially is is what makes it an American art form. And, and you are a storyteller, so it makes sense that these things would, would transfer over nicely. I imagine these worlds do not cross-pollinate much. So do people from your Nashville world know about your proclivity as a systemic thinker, uh, a psychotherapist? They do sometimes. And, you know, most people, when they introduce me to fellow songwriters, they say, all Bill's written 39 books and he was on Oprah with one of his books. So they that word spreads. And so, yeah, I do get a bit of a reputation. And I'm older than the average songwriter. As I say, I'm in my mid to late 60s. And so I sort of stand out. But people know I've been accomplished in another area. They also know I'm a couples and family therapist. And they say, well, Tell me, what would a couple say right here? You know, is this true? Does this ring true? And so they sort of use me as an expert on that when we're writing songs. And Nashville is a co-writing place, so I've I've written 145 songs this year already. And we get together like a job. You show up at 10 in the morning with two other people you may know or you may not know, and you write a song, and then you go to lunch and get together with two other people in the afternoon and write another song. So it's been one of those 10,000-hour things, and I'm in my third year of really pursuing it professionally and I've already had my first country uh, recording released by an artist and I have a second one coming out very soon so I'm starting to get some traction and it's about the same as in my psychotherapy career of teaching and writing it starts slowly and then when you get a reputation and you get some skills at it it goes a little faster but it's a whole lot of fun regardless of the outcome. So we always ask people right it's a the self of the therapist and the way I interview people in here is not that much different than I do therapy. So we, your family of origin and your family of procreation, what do they think is interesting when I interview model developers? Some of their children or spouses, they don't know anything really about their parent or sibling professional career. What is your family 
that big Irish Catholic family that you grew up in, and then your family of procreation, what do they think about these really two, both successful but very distinct career paths you've taken? Well, I'm my family of origin, the only thing that I ever had, you know, I wrote books and they were like, yeah, thanks, great. I'd send them <laughs> books, you know. And and, uh, and then when I got on Oprah, that was the only thing that ever really, like, Billy, he got on Oprah? Wow, that was pretty good. Uh, you know who said the exact same thing? Bill Doherty uh, had his Oprah moment just like that, and he said that is finally when he got his due from his his uh, his family, so you had a well, that's experience. impressive to everybody. I, for some reason, that Oprah thing really impressive. When people introduce me when I'm speaking and they go, "Bill Hans written 39 books. He's taught 3,500 workshops around, and he's been on Oprah." People just sit up in a way. That Oprah thing, it's you can you can use it for the rest of your life. That's really cool. But yeah, I had uh, three step kids and a biological uh, child. My two of my step kids are full time musicians, so they sort of know about the music part of it, but we grew up in a family where their uh, grandfather was a therapist. He was a pastoral counselor, and um, their mother was a psychologist. I'm a psychotherapist, you know, so they were immersed in psychotherapy land, and they were very familiar. In fact, my stepdaughter, I wrote a book on Erickson's work with her. She was my research assistant when she came home from college, Swarthmore, and we wrote that book together called An Uncommon Casebook. So she was pretty familiar, and she went on to get a master's degree in counseling, but she hasn't really used it. Uh, she does something else for a living. They knew all about therapy, and they liked the music stuff, too, and we were always playing music around the house when I was growing up, and then in my uh, family procreation and my step-family, and uh, so they follow along, and they they understand what I'm doing. They like it. Okay, so you have accomplished all of this and you are still very vital. Do you want to do next? Uh, obviously, you're being very successful now as a, a songwriter in Nashville, but as far as your stamp on psychotherapy, systemic thinking, solution-oriented work, what is the next piece of that? And then a legacy question, which is hard when you're still being very productive and vital, but how do you want the field to remember you? Um, you know, for me, I think that African Violet story was a really crucial one for me, and people sort of know me for that or around because I've told it so many times. I really wanted to introduce, and I think I've been somewhat successful, but occasionally I get discouraged when I hear people talk about the field, to remind people that people have strengths and abilities as well as troubles and pathology and challenges. So I hope that that strain has inculcated itself into the psychotherapy field so that people do recognize people's strengths. I mean, when positive psychology came along, people said, oh, that's what you've been doing for years. No, not quite, because I don't see what I do as positive. I see it as strength and solutions and abilities and resources. And positivity has its downsides because you know, it's that American character that's like, you know, we'll just persist no matter what. And then sometimes there's a denial about the dark side of things and the tough side of things that you don't do. So for me, I like to blend those things. Another word when I think of you, play word association, you know, I think of everything you've said, but also you're a man of possibilities. And I think that is a word that fits you well. That is my word. I called my company possibilities when I incorporated. I really think that's it, where you acknowledge Acknowledge the, the challenges and the troubles and the traumas, as well as the strengths, abilities, and possibilities. And so that word really is crucial for me. And, you know, my name is Bill. I My first email was possibil at AOL.com. And so I called my, <laughs> I called my company Possibilities. And that's what I hope, that psychotherapy really becomes filled with possibilities. That's why I went into this field, because I saw the possibility of helping people and reducing suffering. And sometimes when people get in the field, they get a little burned out, because we do see the the seamier side of human beings and the unkindness that sometimes happens in families and in life and in culture. So it is easy to get burned out and discouraged and just lose that sense of possibility. But, you know, I've been a therapist for over four decades, and I still feel full of possibility. When I see somebody in a clinical setting, I'm just like, can't wait to see how they can change and develop and what I could, what small thing I could do to shift them in that direction so they're not suffering so much or they don't die or they don't get divorced or whatever 
terrible thing that they might do if they hadn't come and, you know, been vulnerable and sought help. I think that's a great, it's a sacred uh, profession we're in, and it's a cool thing to do. And I hope it doesn't get spoiled by all the, you know, worries about money and funding and ethics and legalities. And this is a profession that's a sacred profession to me. And I hope to pass that sense of excitement and possibility on to younger people. Oh, beautifully said. And I mean, that's why we do this show. And when I listen to, again, the pioneers in the field, there is some authentic part of them that they are who they are. Like they said, like you said, I mean, one of the things that also makes you effective, I think you're very comfortable with who you are, including the roadblocks and trauma you've had in your whole life. So I think you, you very much live your model, live in possibilities and see strength and health even in adverse circumstances. And I, I do think you will certainly be remembered for that. And I'm really excited now. This is in the, in the year plus of the podcast. We have we've never had a chance to incorporate music, which I love too, if you can't tell. And I, I am not musical myself, but have a great knowledge and appreciation. And I used to do college radio at the largest college and radio station in the country at Northwestern University in the middle of the night. And I I played all night long and I'd end up talking to people on the radio, which was my origin into interviewing people and thinking about being a mental health professional and later leads to a marriage and family therapist. But I love music. So you have a song for us. I mean, you could play us anything, but I want something that is significant to you and representative of this integration between you, one who dwells in possibilities, one who is a helper for, for others and has this love of music. So I can't wait to hear it. All right. Well, great. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to do that. I always have a guitar nearby. You, you mentioned before we started the conversation, do you have a guitar nearby? I said, yes. It's always within hand reach. So, uh, <laughs> and, uh, the, you know, I've been through some relationship challenges myself. I've been divorced a couple of times. Um, ironic for a marriage and family therapist. I'm really good at saving marriages on the brink of divorce, but probably not my own. And, um, but I'm still a hopeless romantic. And my younger sister said to me after my last relationship, relationship broke up and I got into another one. She said, you're my relationship hero. I said, why? And she said, because you always open your heart again after you get your heart broken. I go, well, that's a really nice reframe. I was thinking I had failed marriages. And so um, I was in Nashville and I was writing with that mentor that I said, I didn't ask him to write a song, but he asked me to write a song with him after I helped him with that stuff. And I brought in this first verse and Gary Burr and I, who Gary Burr is an amazing songwriter and singer. And you're, unfortunately, you're going to hear me. He's a much better singer than I am. But we wrote a song called That Kind of Love. So I'll just play it. It's pretty short. It's a couple minutes. I want to rub my back when I come home from work, love I'm sorry that your boss is being such a jerk, love One more kiss before we turn out the lights, love And I'm the first to say I'm sorry when we fight, love I know it's worth the wait, so I'm holding now So I can see the face that I dream about I know that when I finally find her, I'm gonna shout I got that kind of, that kind of love I got that kind of, that kind of love I wanna laugh at all my corny little jokes, love I want and I feel rich even when we're broke, love I can't believe how much I tremble when we touch, love A little notes to say I'm missing you so much, love I know it's worth the wait, so I'm holding out So I can see the face that I dream about I know that when I finally find her I'll have no doubt I got that kind of, that kind of love For that kind of love I'm not afraid to carry on searching as long as it takes For that kind of love The heart will say yes So I'm never, no, never gonna settle for less And I know it's worth the wait So I'm holding out so I can see the face that I dream about I know that when I finally find her I'm gonna shout I've got that kind of, that kind of love I've got that kind of, that kind of love I've got that kind of, that kind of love 
That was awesome, Bill. Thank you. Well, I'm glad to be the first musical guest that you've had on the podcast. Yeah, I was finding a way to integrate my two loves uh, for for music and and Uh, music has been a big part of my life. I love it. That that was beautiful, and and that was a a great collaboration with Gary Burr. So here at the end, I mean, you could talk for another hour. This has been a great. a great interview. I know love is a verb. I know that's been out a while now. I, I love the title of that too. Uh, recently read that one. Uh, so just plug whatever you want, either your latest book or uh, I know you're writing a lot of these things behind the scenes. My last, music. yeah, my last two books are on songwriting, so I won't really speak about those here. But um, I've written with his songwriters in Nashville. But the last one I wrote was really near and dear to my heart because I got depressed when I was younger and came out of that serious depression, almost killed myself. A friend talked me out of it, and I wrote a, a book called Out of the Blue, and um, that was published by Norton. So you might go check that out. The other thing I'll say is that I wrote that book love is a verb and this was some years ago it came out in the 90s and three songwriters have written songs based on that book and uh, one was called love is a verb by john mayer another was called love is a verb spelled l-u-v by dc talk which is a christian rock group and the third one was a country hit and it was called love is something that we do by clint black and it was written co-written with skip ewing and i was like why didn't I write a song based on that title? And uh, so when I wrote Out of the Blue, I wrote a song called Out of the Blue. And it's a love song. It's not a depression song. But I'm actually working on a depression song right now. But we'll see what happens with that. But uh, yeah, if people want to go check out Out of the Blue. And then my big claim to fame is that book that got me on Oprah, which was Do One Thing Different. You can find my music on a little site called BillOhanlon.com slash music with a capital M. And there's there's a few of my original songs on there, but you'll hear some of my songs on the radio. One is released by a guy named Kevin Hershen. It's called Wrong For Me. He's a country singer. So that's the first song professionally that I've written that's out. Amazing. Bill, I've learned so much. This was fun. You're an original. Don't ever change. And maybe we can do it again down the line. Take care of yourself. And thank you for being part of the podcast. Well, that was sure fun. I can't thank Bill enough. And we got a musical performance in the end. Certainly uh, a first, but hopefully not a last for the AMFT podcast, the Pioneer Series I love it. Over the last two years, we've talked to the who's who in the field of systemic therapy. In addition to Bill today, we can talk to Sue Johnson, the Gottmans, Bill Doherty, Chloe Madonna's, Dave, David Schnarch, Dick Schwartz, among others. And if there's somebody you want that we haven't talked to yet, please drop me a line. The easiest way to do that is info at elikaram.com. That's E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M, like A-M radio. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Eli Live, and the AMFT is just at the AMFT. A couple things Bill mentioned. BillOhanlon.com is your one-stop shop for everything Bill O'Hanlon. And you go there and you see Bill with all of his many books that he's written. It says, Welcome to Bill O'Hanlon's Possibility Land. With the play on words. One thing I love about him is you saw in that interview, he's clearly a blessed man and he does pay it forward. So there's some really informative slides from his past presentations on his website that really helps if you're trying, whether you're a young clinician or an experienced therapist, if you're trying to integrate some more of these solution-oriented principles into your work. He has some great slides on there in addition to all of his books. You want to Here's some more Bill O'Hanlon music. It's just BillOhanlon.com slash music. And there you will see him from his home studio in Santa Fe. He's got uh, at least 10 songs on there right now that you can share and give some love to. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, my friends, stay systemic.